All right, so we're in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to finish chapter 6 tonight by looking at verses 9 through 20. Communion, right? Nothing better than that. Just spending time in the Word and then spending time with the Lord, the, the living Word as He ministers to us and, you know, continues to speak to us with what we learn. Tonight we're going to continue our two-part message that we're calling Message Impossible, part two. Last week we, we looked at a passage in which the writer says it's impossible for those who fall away to renew themselves to repentance. And we spent a good amount of time on verses four through eight looking at that and seeing how they were believers and the writer was encouraging them to press forward. If not, there would be discipline and disqualification as they continue to press forward. Now, tonight, we're going to see an encouragement to these believers. After he, you know, really exhorted them and, and encouraged them, now he's going to actually encourage them now to press forward, and he's going to give us some very practical and important truths. So let's pray. Let's see what the Lord has for us. Father, thank you so much for um, this book where we know it's inspired, it's inerrant, and it's living, it's powerful. And Lord, you want to use it in our lives, and you have used it in many lives thus far. So Lord, we just pray that you, by your Spirit you would continue that work, that the message would be clear, that it would be Spirit-led in the sense, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work, Lord, through the gift of teaching to apply your Scripture to the hearts and lives of your saints, Lord. Unless your Spirit does the work, Lord, we're, we're Lord. We're, you know, we're really hopeless, Lord, because we need you. Lord, we need you to minister and to, and to work and to move, to fill us, Lord. So, Lord, do that good work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's begin with a theological question. Just answer it in your heart so nobody yells out the wrong answer. Is there anything that God can't do? Well, the answer is yes. And um, if you answered yes, you are correct. The scriptures are clear. God cannot contradict his own nature. Here's what 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says. He says, if we are faithless, he, that's God, remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so there are things that even God can't do. And what God can't do is he cannot contradict his own nature. God is bound by his own nature. So in other words, God is truth. He can't be error. God is love. He can't be hate. You know, so God must be consistent with who he is. He doesn't change. He is perfect in every way, able to reveal his character and his attributes perfectly without changing. Now, the writer takes this very deep truth tonight and encourages the believers in Jesus Christ with it. Look at verse 18. He says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And so the writer wants to give these guys some strong consolation. That's like a strong cup of coffee, man. It's like, I'm gonna give you some strong comfort. I'm gonna give you some strong encouragement right now. I'm gonna give you a big dose of it. And here's where it is rooted at. It's rooted in God. He said, because you know what? It's impossible for God to lie. And the word impossible means impossible as we looked at last week. What, what does the Greek word mean? Impossible, right? And so God cannot lie. He cannot contradict himself. He cannot change. 
And that gives us encouragement because what he says he's gonna do. And as, and, and, you know, and as he's revealed in the scripture, that's who he is. And so as believers, we can take great comfort and encouragement, especially as we face tough times in life. There's a really a sub-theme here behind this passage, and it's patient endurance. Patient endurance. And the Bible calls each believer to walk in patient endurance. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is out of the book of James. And when James writes to a group of believers, Jews, as these folks were, who were persecuted, and he says, hey, you know what, guys? I want you guys to walk in patient endurance. I want you to be like the farmer who waits for the precious crop. You know, and, and, and that's the way you and I are to be. And sometimes we're gonna face situations in life where we think, I don't wanna endure this situation. I want out. You know, I want comfort. I want rest from it. And that's what the Hebrews were facing. They were in a tough situation. They were being persecuted by their Jewish relatives, by the Jewish community. Rome was also against them. The year is probably 64 AD, in which at that time the Jews began revolting, small pockets of revolt against Rome. The final revolt would be in 66 AD, so it was a time of Jewish patriotism. But yet here was these Jewish Christians really ostracized from society, persecuted by the Jews. And they thought, you know what? We wanna just really end this right now and really have some rest and comfort. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go back to the Jewish religion, set our faith in Christ aside, go back to Jewish religion, and everything's gonna be great. And the writer says, there is no retreat. There is no going back. We need to press forward one way, press forward to maturity. You need to patiently endure, and you can do so because God is with you and he doesn't change. His word is real and he's ministered in the past and he's gonna continue to minister in the future. So as we look at these things and more, we'll focus really around two things. Number one, God will be faithful to finish his plan in our lives. And number two, God will be faithful to fulfill his promises in his word. So first in verses 9 through 12, we learn that God will be faithful to finish his plan in your life. He says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation that we speak in this manner. So the writer spoke in this manner. What he's referring to is he's talking about verses four through eight. He spoke in a very serious manner, talking about discipline and judgment that will come for those who would decide to remain in immaturity and actually even continue to decline and turn back and fall away and go back to Judaism. After he exhorted them, then as a pastor, he loves on them and encourages them. He says, but beloved, or loved ones, we're beloved in Jesus because he is the beloved, but also we're loved by God. He said, you who are loved by God, he said, I know that you're gonna heed this warning that I'm giving to you. I'm confident. I gave you this harsh warning, but you know what? None of you guys would do that. I know you're gonna press forward and experience those good things that God is gonna do in your life. They were to press forward and experience joy and blessing. If they would choose to turn back, if they would choose to go back, they would experience, as I said, disqualification, discipline. That was illustrated in verse eight, talking about the ground there, which was um, nearly cursed and, and burned. But if they would continue to press forward, they would experience the blessings that God has for them. And the blessings are illustrated in verse seven. He talked about the ground, which receives that rain, which we haven't had a while, a while in the valley. Maybe Monday, right? Depends if you live in Visalia. Yahoo Weather says, I don't know what, it's crazy. Yahoo Weather says it's gonna rain in Visalia, but in Lamore and Hanford, we're, we're out of luck, so. 
But anyways, you know, if, if you experience rain, right, it yields precious crops. And the rain there is referring to the work of God. The crops is referring to the fruit that comes from a believer's life. And if we'll press forward, we're gonna experience that blessing. We're gonna experience that fruit as the Lord continues to minister to us and rain on us. Verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So the writer's confidence, which is mentioned in verse nine, is actually because of who God is. He said, yeah, I know you guys are gonna press forward, and the reason why he knew that is because he knew that the God that they served. Abraham had the same confidence. In chapter 18 of Genesis, there is the Lord, which is actually Jesus there, pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, and the two angels came and they said, hey, we're gonna destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Surely not. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And he said, well, if there's 50 in the city, will you not judge it? And the Lord said, nope, I won't do it for 50. He said, well, don't hold it against me, but what about 40? I won't do it for 40. You know, and he got all the way down to 10. But he was confident that the judge of all the earth would do right. He knew that the Lord would act righteously because of who he is. In the same way, the writer here says, God is not unjust. He will not forget or forsake those who are believers. He said, I gave you a, a tough warning, but you know what? God is with you and you're his child and he's gonna continue to work in your life. He's not gonna forget that work that you have done for him in his name. He's not gonna forget the work that you are doing now, but he's gonna come alongside of you and he's gonna make sure that his work is fulfilled. It might sometimes take discipline as we love our own children, right, and have to discipline them. But even so, to these folks, God will fulfill his work. Now, we know these folks um, would bear fruit and, um, and, you know, as the writer says here, as they would press forward. Now, as believers, as we're talking about fruit here, it's important to note that we're not saved by works. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith, and everyone knows that. It's a basic truth. But while we're not saved by works, our faith, the Bible says, should produce works if it's a living faith. So we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It should always produce fruit if it's a living and a, a vibrant faith. And these Christians here demonstrate that they had a living faith, that they were saved. Yes, they were in a state of immaturity, and they were, the writer was continuing to, you know, to tell them to press forward, but nevertheless, they were saved. We know that here because they had a work for the Lord. They had a labor of love. They were doing things in his name. They were ministering to others in the past, and they were now even ministering to people in the present. And so, you know, they were doing a good work. And, you know, as believers, the Lord wants fruit from our lives. As we talked about, you know, there, there is the ground that bears fruit. That's what the Lord wants. He wants fruit, and he wants fruit that remains. And sometimes fruit will require us to do work, not to do works to get fruit. Obviously, we get that as we walk by faith, but sometimes the fruit that the Lord wants to do in our life will require us to step out in faith and to serve God in some form of a work. It's not always gonna be sitting back, drinking coffee and discussing scripture. That's great, we love that. Sometimes the Lord says, hey, you know what? I want you to serve me, and serving me means to be a servant. And sometimes if you are gonna be a servant, you're gonna be treated like a servant and you need to act like a servant. So these believers were working for the Lord and that's exactly what it means, they were working. 
But even though they were working, it was a labor of love. And Jacob, in the Old Testament, working for Rachel, remember that? Laban tricked him, said, hey, you're going to work for, for seven years for my daughter. And he worked seven years, and he said, oh, wait, by the way, I meant for my other daughters, more seven more years, you know, so he was tricked. But we're told that he worked 14 years for Rachel, but yet the time that he worked seemed like nothing to him because he loved her so much. In the same way, the Lord wants to bring forth fruit. He wants us to step out and do a good work for him. And it's based on our mindset, whether it will be a work or will be a labor of love. Now, that specific work and labor of love that they were doing was ministering to others. They were actually laying down their life and serving others. They were ministering to others in his name, whether it be ministering to those who were in prison for their faith, ministering to those who were in need, you know, or encouragement, teaching, um, evangelism, whatever it might be, they were, they were others-focused. And that's what the Lord wants you and I as believers to bring forth from our life as we serve him. Verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. So the writer says, hey, yeah, you guys started doing a good work. I want you to continue it. Notice he says we here. Who's the we? Could be the other folks that he's with when he's writing it. Obviously, he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, so, and God's got his back, right? And so he says, hey, guys, here's what God wants you to do. Here's what the testimony of the church is. Continue to press forward. Don't remain in your current state. Don't go back to Judaism, but run the race to finish it. You know, we have a race that's, that's set before us, and we can't look back. We have to look forward. We need to look forward to the finish line, to the author and finisher of our faith, who's Jesus. Verse 12, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So the commitment to run our race, to finish it, affects our rewards, because it's going to determine, you know, how blessed we are when we stand in front of the Lord, that's one thing, but it also affects our spiritual condition. The reason is because it affects our mindset. If we don't have our mind focused on running the race to finish it, then we can begin to step back and relax, maybe even become sluggish, as the writer says here. He said, man, you need to imitate or mimic, actually that's what the word imitate means, you need to mimic those who are running the race to finish it those who are looking forward to the God's promises and going forward, don't imitate those who have taken their eyes off eternity and are now living for this world. They've become sluggish. The word sluggish means lazy, or I like the word lollygagger. They become lollygaggers in the Christian faith. All right, when you think of a lollygagger, you think of someone just kind of lollygagging around, right? We have a lot of people who work for the government, lollygaggers, right? <laughs> you gotta kind of encourage them, hey, come on, man. You actually work for a living, right? And so, and they kind of just lollygagging around. They're there, you know, they're getting paid, but, you know, they're there. And we need to not be like that as a Christian. Hey, we're in this thing. We need to do a good work for the Lord. It doesn't have to be a burdensome, you know, toiling, you know, burdensome work because it's a labor of love. But nevertheless, we should do a work for the Lord. Beware of who we choose to follow as examples whether it's people you see on TV, movements that you're, you know, might involve with books you read, you know, or, or folks you follow. We need to make sure that we're following those folks 
who have a patient endurance in the scriptures. And, and the writer here points to Abraham, the father of faith. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point to the scriptures. And I, I love it. He really didn't even point to himself. He says, okay, I'm, I'm going to point to the scriptures. I'm going to show you the father of faith. Now, before I move on to Abraham, I want to just summarize and drive home this first encouragement for us tonight. Notice this. God will not forget our works. He will not forsake us as believers. He'll complete that good work that he has begun in us. But because of this, I must not be a lollygagger in my Christian walk, but I need to run the race set before me to finish it. It's always based on who God is and what he's done, but that requires a response. We need to not remain where we are. If it's a state of immaturity, if we're going back, the Lord wants us to break out of that and just press forward, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Second, verses um, 13 through 20, we learn that God will be faithful to fulfill his promises in his word. We're told, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So now the writer points to Abraham. He says, you want a faithful person who endured, who walked by faith, who had patience? Abraham. That's the guy I'm talking about from verse 12. The writer pointed to him, and said, he is, he is what we need to be as a Christian pressing forward. Now, Abraham grew in this understanding of walking by faith. God taught him this through patience. When you read the life of Abraham, you think, really, the father of faith? Yes, and God taught him that over time. Through his failures, he learned, right? Through his mistakes and through time, the Lord taught him to be the man of faith that he was. Genesis 22 didn't, it wasn't the beginning of his life. It began in chapter 12 as the Lord began to work and to move. And so, you know, the Lord taught him. Now, one of those areas that the Lord taught him patience in is offspring and, and you know, the fact that he would have a son from his line. This is, you know, this was a tough thing for Abraham since his wife Sarah was barren. And so the Lord came to him and said, hey, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. But his wife was barren. She couldn't have children. And yet God said that from Abraham and Sarah would come this blessed promise. Abraham, over time, waited, endured. The Lord continued to give him his promises, telling him that his descendants would be as the sand of the seashore and as the stars of the heaven, innumerable. And the Lord was faithful to his promise. He gave him Isaac. The Lord fulfilled that. Now, verse 15 says that it was after a long, a long time that the Lord did this, 25 years to be exact, it, the Lord worked this out in Abraham's life. He waited and waited and waited. At times, he got kind of, kind of helpless there and tried to help God out, which turned out to be a bad situation. Don't ever try to help God out. Just trust in God and walk by faith. He did that with Hagar, and Ishmael came, and there was division in the home. But yet, the Lord fulfilled his promise. He gave him Isaac. Now we're given an interesting verse in verse 14. The writer here quotes Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 and 17. Now this is a reaffirmation of this promise even after Isaac was born, even after Isaac was some 30 years old. Genesis 22 describes Isaac probably some around 30. And the Lord came to Abraham and said, hey Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, up to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Abraham, being a man of faith, 
as we'll see later on in Hebrews 11, knew that all God's promises to him in this, you know, to bring forth this great nation would be fulfilled in Isaac. So if he had to sacrifice Isaac, God would raise him again from the dead. So Abraham trusted the Lord. Isaac also trusted his dad too. And they walked up the mountain together. And there is Abraham laid his son Isaac down the altar and grabbed the knife and was gonna slay him. The Lord said, whoa, Abraham, I see that you trusted me. Look over here, there's a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham grabbed that, that ram and there he sacrificed it in the stead of Isaac. And then the Lord gave him this promise. And so we see here that though while God was working to give him Isaac, the promise was not yet fully fulfilled. There would still be more. You know, actually, Abraham wouldn't actually experience all the promises that God promised to him. But yet, this reaffirmation and the fact that God gave him Isaac would be an encouragement for him to continue to press forward because God had been faithful and God would be faithful to continue to fulfill the promises that he had for him. That's important for these believers. It's important for you and I because God wants to have us press forward in patient endurance. And the way that he does it is he gives us promises that we don't see probably in this life. Promises of heaven, promises of eternity. But we can walk by faith as we'll see because God has done many things. God is true to his word. God is faithful to his nature so we can press forward and trust in those future things that he gives us. What are those things? Well, he begins talking about them in verse 16. He says, for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath of confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. So when people swear, they swear by, swear by something greater than them. I swear on a stack of Bibles, right? right? Hope, uh, cross my heart and hope to die. Well, that's not real good. It's not a good one. But you know, everyone knows what I mean. You swear by something greater than yourself. I swear on my mom's grave, you know, kind of thing. Don't ever swear like that. That's not good. But, you know, but a person always does that. And since there was no one greater than God, God had to swear by himself, as we see here. Now, the fact that a person swears or gives an oath is really oftentimes a confirmation and end of that dispute. And so if a person's disputing and they say, hey, okay, I'm gonna take an oath. I swear on this thing greater than myself that I'm gonna do this. And say, okay, all right, that's settled. I mean, you know, you swore by that. Well, the writer goes on now and talks about God. He says, thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, that's us, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. And so God did not have to swear or take an oath when talking to Abraham. God's true in who he is. But God chose to do so for us, the heirs of promises. I love how much of the Old Testament is prophetic. It's really amazing when you think about it. People think, I only read the New Testament when I read the Bible. I don't read the Old Testament because it doesn't really apply to me. And if you read through the New Testament, the writers are always talking about the Old Testament, saying, hey, man, that was written for us. That was written for us. That was written for us. Yes, well, the context is to the, you know, that, that group of people that the writer was writing to. Nevertheless, there's a prophetic application there for you and I as believers. And that's what the writer says. He says, man, when you read Genesis 22, you see God making this oath, and this oath is to encourage you and I, the fact that he's gonna be faithful to fulfill his promise. God demonstrated it. And since God gave this oath, 
we know that he has given us immutable, that is unchanging promises. And we know God's gonna fulfill these unchanging promises because he doesn't change and he can't lie. Now what are these two immutable promises? Or these two immutable things, really? It's God's promises and his word and his oath. Those are the two things that doesn't change. God's word and his oath. And based on these things, we have comfort and, and hope knowing that God is gonna fulfill what he told us in his word. And so uh, here's some of the things that, that he's told us. He's told us here that we can have hope. We can have hope. Since God, settled, since God said it, excuse me, it settles it. That's an old saying, but it's true. God said it, it settles it. And because God is true to his word, we, you and I can have hope. Hope is, um, you know, desire with expectancy. That's what it is, desire with expectancy. The believer can have hope in our salvation. These believers can have hope that God would continue his work of sanctification, that he would continue to mature them in their faith. He wouldn't leave them in the state where they were, but he would continue to sanctify them, change them day by day into his glory. But salvation isn't just past in our salvation, the fact that we believed on Jesus and were redeemed. It's not only in the present, but it's also future. We have a hope in the future. Peter says that our names are in heaven. We're, you know, that fact that we have God's inheritance waiting for us in heaven. So we have a future hope that one day we're gonna be with Jesus. Part of that hope is gonna be fulfilled in the rapture, which is the glorious hope of the believer. As Jesus comes back, we're gonna be transformed. This living body is gonna be changed into an immaterial body. The Lord doesn't come when I, you know, breathe my last breath here on earth, we're gonna sleep. Our body's gonna remain here, but our soul and our spirit is gonna go to heaven to be with the Lord. But whatever the case may be, because God is true to his word, because he's made an oath and he won't change, he's given us hope, the fact that he's gonna finish, uh, fulfill our salvation. He goes on and says, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so this hope that we have is an anchor of our soul. It keeps us grounded. It keeps us sure and steadfast in the things that the Lord wants to do in our life. The reason we can remain sure and steadfast is because like God gave Abraham Isaac, even so the Lord has already fulfilled many promises that we can look at and know that God will continue to fulfill future promises. What are some of those promises? Well, for one is Jesus as he predicted, died on the cross and rose again the third day. When you read through the book of Acts, the resurrection of the dead is the greatest evidence that the church gave for the truth of Christianity. They said, hey, you killed the Messiah, but God has raised him again from the dead and he's now sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus rose again and he ascended into heaven and notice this, now he has went in behind the veil. When God gave Moses the blueprints of the tabernacle, he says, I want you to make it exactly like I tell you. And the reason is, is because it was a picture of the heavenly tabernacle that's in heaven now. And as Jesus entered heaven, he went beyond, you know, beyond this veil into the Holy of Holies, the very throne of God. And now he stands there. And because Jesus has died and rose again from the dead, we have the promise that you and I will follow him. He has become the first fruits 
of the resurrection. And we know that because the word forerunner here means one who leads that others may follow. One who leads that others may follow. Because Jesus is a forerunner, we have the hope that others will follow after him. And that gives us confidence and hope. Because Jesus is in heaven, he's not dead in the grave, you and I can have strong comfort that everything God says in his word will come to pass. Everything that God says about our, save, our salvation will come true. Why look back? Why not stay moving forward? All right, these believers had fled to the refuge, which is a picture of that city of refuge. In Jesus, they were saved, they were, they were sanctified. God was working. He was pointing them towards heaven. There was no reason to go back to Judaism as they were thinking, but rather they were to continue to press forward. So in closing, if we were to sum it up and, and bring it home, God wants to encourage us tonight. He gave us a strong encouragement last week, but he gives us comfort tonight. He says, if you're his child, he's gonna complete the work that he has begun in your life. If you're his child, he's gonna fulfill the promises that he has given you in his word. It should make us excited, give us a second wind, right? To run the race that's set before us.